Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, Read a Song of Ice and Fire, episode 127, Catalan 10 in a Game of Thrones. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. We've made it. We've made it to the Whispering Wood, which the whisper. It's apparently wood. about a battle and not um, Jamie's dick. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, that is what I think about it. I, I will give now the background of. And I've never really thought about this chapter that much, but it turns out it's like a masterpiece, and I think everyone knows it's a masterpiece. But oh yeah, whenever I think about the Whispering Wood, I think about our good friend Scad. From Davos Fingers, <laughs> and when you're at Ice and Fire Con, during what what is the name of that panel that workshop? Chloe, the bad fan fiction. Yes, the bad fan fiction panel where I guess he drew right two characters he had to ship together in his story that he wrote together with uh, Anne Sweet YFT from the Hypes Watch, and they were teamed up that year and they wrote the Whispering Wood, which is about <laughs> Rob and Jamie. It's, and it's basically what you would think it is, you know, but maybe it's not. It It's the reading is online. We might have actually linked it before, but it's worth plugging again. It is online for you to listen to Scad's <laughs> wonderful narration of this beautiful piece of fan fiction that won. It won that, that year. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm like, what would we call that job? Raimi? Oh, Raimi. That's Raimi. kind of, that has some sexual connotations behind Romy. it. Raimi. Huh. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Well, we'll we'll have to pull that link back up because it is kind of a classic. I think it, I, it is to me. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll get into some of the sexual tension from House Lannister happening in this chapter as we go along, I think. It's a horny Absolutely. chapter. <laughs> Rainy. <laughs> yes, but this time with a different Stark. Besides, <laughs> besides coming south, you know to oh, someone's going south. <laughs> I I was trying to say I don't know towards River Run, towards River Run. We also went a couple of other places last month. Yeah, we just got back from a big Westerosi June spring break. I don't know, like a May spring break, and we went to Pentos. We went to Pentos. Eliana and I put out the Pentos Pentoshi Penthouse edition. I say that ten times fast. I sure can't. Listen, we're going to all the free cities. We are on a tour. You know, it's that year after we graduate from like I don't know maiden school or whatever they maiden do. School. finishing school. Maiden finishing school. We're about to go get finished in the free oh, cities. All right. Yes. Maybe we end with Bravo so we can go to the House of Black and White and die. Oh, that's not a bad idea. It's a thought. Hmm, we'll workshop it. We'll workshop it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I had a great time in this episode. There's a lot of stuff, like a lot of the Magor stuff with Tyana of the Tower I forgot about that we got to kind of recap and go over. Mm-hmm. And a lot of fun stuff, of course, with Illyrio and Tyrion and Danny. So you'll have to tune into that if you're a patron in the Stranger tier and above. This coming month, we're going to do a His Dark Materials-themed episode here in June. We'll let you know what that is going to be about very soon. Very soon. Yes. And turns out June is also a very hurtful month because I didn't realize... I mean, I knew it, and I was thinking about it earlier today, but it hasn't sank in that in a few weeks we're about to start our read-through of The Amber Spyglass, book three of the His Dark Materials series, and 
It's painful. Yeah. It's a painful book. I love it so much. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about this today because we're also doing Catalan chapters that don't get happier. Wow. What's wrong with us? No wonder we're going to go die in the house of black and white. <laughs> Join us in the house of black and white where we will be giving up. Yep. Girls gone canon death Well. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Girls gone death cult. Oh, oh, my, my God. oh no. Uh, well, so I guess this doesn't help make our case now that we've put that energy out into the universe. We have a discord, everyone. <laughs> where once a month... We have a brunch slash happy hour, and we do not ask people to drink Kool-Aid, but we do ask you to, if you would like, bring a libation of your own. Sometimes for me, it's coffee, which is a very different energy, but I mean, that's why it says brunch, okay? And <laughs> sometimes it's just water. I bring the happy. I bring the hour. <laughs> I bring the hour. Tag yourself. I'm the happy hour. Uh, no, it is a fun time, right? Anyone who is a patron in the Thunder tier and above gets access to our Discord, not just for brunch and happy hour, which is happening in June on the 26th, Saturday the 26th. I think we'll be doing it from 2 to 4. You know, got to squeeze in around those Joe Magician live streams and the Radio Westeros live streams these days, but we'll, we'll pencil y'all in for a brunch then, so we'll love to see you. More details to come. Yes. And of course, we have fun activities when we do those, such as, for example, this past month, we returned to the format of the presentation potlucks, which was very fun. And it was a dream of spring break. No. Yes? No, it was a dream. It was just a dream of spring. We've just said a dream of like spring break so many times that I'm like conflating everything. Um, It was a dream. Of it's a marketing scheme once a year. Okay. <laughs> Until it comes out, which, dear God, I hope it does, but, um, <laughs> yeah, it was a Dream of Spring themed, and other times, and, and at the end, you know, we played some Jackbox games, which we usually do. Those are fun. Yeah, we do a couple giveaways of some fun art, some fan art from A Song of Ice and Fire artists, and, uh, you know, also some His Dark Materials swag from different creators as well, and it's just fun to do the get-to-know-yous and play some yeah. of those Jackbox icebreaker games, and... Uh, it's always a riot. I do a lot of laughing. My husband is always in the other room like, what the fuck is so funny? <laughs> <laughs> well, he could join well, from the other room. I know, he's literally, he's literally he in could. the Discord. He's welcome. Mm. <laughs> he's welcome. And he can be in on the jokes. Well, well. And you two are. Go head over to <laughs> patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon and you can join. Maybe not from the other room, but uh, from your your computer, your home. Well, before we finish up our housekeeping, we had a really great email from one of our friends, Robin, who's been shut up in their apartment throughout the pandemic and kind of been using us as a companion for biking Aww. out in the city. That's awesome. I actually have done a bad job of, but I did get back into biking after many, many years. I got back on a bike during the pandemic. So I'm glad that we could do that for you. It feels like we're biking together, but not because... I'm very out of shape. Uh, Robin <laughs> says, 
I think that going by POV by POV really helps you dial into how strong A Song of Ice and Fire is as a series of character studies, whereas most people are drawn in by the politics, military, supernatural elements, etc. You mentioned in a couple of episodes you would like people to send pet pics. I do not have a pet in my apartment, but my sibling has a couple of birds, including a very cute Linny parakeet named Blueberry. Occasionally, pre-pandemic, I am the bird sitter for Blueberry and the rest of the flock. I've attached a few pictures of Blueberry as well as a Blueberry mood chart I made a couple of months ago. Please enjoy. And Hopefully we'll be able to link this if Robin gives us permission because this chart is a joy. It is. And if we are able to share this, we, we just want to let you know now what our moods are today. I think that I am, you know, for the most part of the day... Right. I have been, I think, blueberry number 15. I woke up earlier than I would have liked because I had a dentist appointment. So I've I've been in the mood to be snuggled under a blanket. How about you, Chloe? Who are you today? This is hard. There are so many relatable moods from blueberry. There are. My day... My day was interesting. I'm going to actually spin this. I'm going to give you a variant. Are you ready? Okay. I'm going to give you my blueberry sun, my blueberry moon, and my blueberry oh, rising. Oh, wow. okay, 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 okay. <laughs> That's how many photos are on this chart, you all. It's amazing. I, I want you to know, but we'll get ready to see it. This is how many photos are on this chart. This is such an important chart. I'm so happy. Thank you, Robin. Okay, I am, I am a 15 sun. Okay. A 7 moon. Okay. And an 11 rising. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, All I right. think that's that's a strong where I am. I don't know, 16's in there somewhere. Maybe it's my my uh, Saturn. I don't know. We'll figure it out. But that's mine. I would love to hear. Uh, we'll, we'll find out if we can. If Robin lets us post this, maybe you too can give us what your blueberry mood board is. Yeah. And I will add, you know, while 15 is me for most of the day, I will say that number five, number five blueberry <laughs> is the both of us right now. We, we've actually had a discussion of which bird is which. <laughs> and I, I think, I guess I'm in the role of blueberry and Chloe is the bird. The yellow bird that I am annoying. Those are your words, not mine. And I agree, though. So. <laughs> well, okay. So Robin didn't just send us this blueberry mood chart. Uh, we I hope no yeah. one skipped through this. <laughs> I, I, Don't yeah. skip through this. There are some good things here. Robin content. has some A Song of Ice and Fire thoughts for us. Yes. Robin said... I had a couple of A Song of Ice and Fire thoughts that have been bouncing around in my head listening to your coverage of Catelyn Chapters. Would love to hear your thoughts. And uh, there are a couple of good thoughts, but we have picked this one out to focus on for this episode. In your episode on Catelyn 3, you comment on how it's a bit odd that Catelyn immediately jumps to Jamie as Bran's would-be killer with seemingly no evidence to go on. I mostly agree with this, but wanted to sketch out a defense of why George could reasonably write Catelyn jumping to this conclusion. Something that sticks out to me now after a couple of rereads is that Catelyn is a pretty staunch legalist and frames a lot of her thinking slash actions in legalistic terms. Oaths, inheritance, formal or informal norms, fealty, laws, etc. are all at the top of her mind, and the failure of these institutions slash 
violation of all these concepts is a big part of her story. Just a few lines before she suggests Jamie as Brand's killer, she begins demanding oaths of secrecy from all the others present. Anyways, given how Catelyn applies this framework to her thinking when searching for possible suspects to Bran's attempted murder, it seems like a reasonable conclusion to choose the only person around who is very famous for specifically violating a vow slash oath. I think this aspect of her character is worth keeping an eye on going forward as you explore further into Clash and Storm. I will be at least. Hmm. That is interesting. She's going off of a uh... That suspicion, right? That that pre-informed suspicion from other things. I like that. The oaths and inheritance and the kind of like law aspect of it is great. That is a, you know, that's a Clinton Mary thought too. I wonder how they would think of that. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it goes well with that episode where we had Clinton. And yeah, I think that this makes a lot of sense. And while I personally still think, you know, I'm still just like, that's... Not the first thought I would have thought, but that's because I'm not Catelyn. I don't think of the world in these terms. And mm-hmm. yeah, so so it makes sense. I, th- I think that this rationale works within like a Watsonian context. And also yeah. it, it reminds me a little of like, you know, I mean, she was right. And I think George partially wrote it so that it would work that way conveniently. But it also makes me think a little of like, yeah, I guess Cersei was right that the Tyrells were partially, you know, behind her son's death. I mean, I don't know that she was right in how she got there, but somehow she came to the right conclusion. (laughs) And it's got a little bit of that energy to me. It does have that energy. And I know that like it has both positives and negatives on it because Mm -hmm. first it was like, all right, I got a Tyrion. All right, now we got a Jaime. But... It is that whole, like what Clint said, right? That, uh, you know, not technically what's being charged here. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Very true. He's like, I just did the whole thing that put him in a coma, lady Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm not unreasonable. Yeah, and yet that interaction is laced with sexual tension. (sighs) Weird. (sighs) Well... Let's project ourselves into the lightning round so we can get deeper into that sexual tension. Oh, wow. Okay. We're not going to go into it that much, um, just so everyone knows. Anyways. Yeah, if you're really excited right now, if you're, like, getting a little hot about it. Yeah, calm down. Take a cold shower. Um, We still have a clash of kings. Or if you're upset about it, know that we're not really. That's not what the chapter's about. The chapter, also what it's not about, it's not about John 8, which... John is given a Valyrian steel sword by the Lord Commander. Maester Aemon tries to reach through John's exterior with empathy and reveals his true identity in the process. Daenerys 7. Cal Drogo has conquered another town, another Kalisar, and taken captives. Daenerys steps in to stop the Blood Riders from assaulting the woman. Drogo takes wounds, and a healer that was rescued through Daenerys volunteers her talents. Tyrion 8. Tyrion and his men are assigned to Sir Gregor Clegane's vanguard, and Tyrion meets a woman named Shay. He's called to battle by Dawn, and the Lannister soldiers are tricked by the wolves of Winterfell. I, too, have felt tricked about the wolves of Winterfell, specifically the she-wolves of Winterfell. Am I going to get this novella one day? I don't know. We're getting awfully demanding lately. I, I have been. It's 2021, <laughs> all right? Like... Listen, we spent the Clean past your shit. year in yeah. four walls, and we're getting a little testy. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, 
this chapter, this published chapter, <laughs> is a chapter that I don't really think needs an overview so much as an introduction through Catalan's eyes. The woods were full of whispers. Moonlight winked on the tumbling waters of the stream below as it wound its rocky way along the floor of the valley. Beneath the trees, war horses wickered softly and pawed at the moist, leafy ground while men made nervous jests in hushed voices. Now and again, she heard the chink of spears, the faint metallic slither of chainmail, but even those sounds were muffled. It should not be long now, my lady, Hallis Mullen said. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. Wow, this is this chapter is art. And it is. You really don't have to reread it with us. You could just reread it and you'll have the same experience, I bet. But <laughs> but still listen, truly. <laughs> yeah, we've got a good episode, I think. Or I hope. I don't know. I hope. I hope. Listen, this is... This imagery is just unmatched, right? It's just gorgeous, and you can feel it. You can feel the wind in the trees, and you can feel the rustle and the tension of this battle about to start. And, you know, we're going POV to POV, but I did make a detour to check up on the last Tyrion chapter on some of the imagery. And it's great structurally in comparison to this. Tyrion goes to bed before they're taken unawares the next morning, right, of a night of a just a romp, right, of the drinking and the the revelry before a big battle. Uh, And by the end of the battle, it's really interesting. So both of these characters, Catelyn and Tyrion, are taken out of the active action. They're unable to participate, and one or two of their senses are even removed. For Catelyn, it's sight for the darkness in the woods, amplifying the whispers of the brush and the shouts of the lords. But for Tyrion, it's consciousness, right? Uh, and structurally, even down to the Harus in these chapters, they align so well. There's even this certain point of the structure that works really well with the parenting that's going on. Mm. Tywin puts his least favorite child in direct danger purposefully in battle, right? Like, it's it's pretty purposefully. And Tyrion somehow, against all odds, lives Catelyn makes sure that a guard is installed around Rob soon, and where Tywin is haughty and arrogant and proud, and he spent all of his time calling Rob a green boy. By the end of Tyrion's chapter, Tywin's embarrassed and he's wrong. He's been tricked by the green boy, where Catelyn at the end of this chapter is busy saying, Rob, don't be arrogant, don't be proud. This was only a battle, not a war. Even Tyrion's last uh, thoughts in Tyrion 8. A green boy, Tyrion remembered, more like to be brave than wise. He would have laughed if he hadn't hurt so much. I love that that's a great connection, that Tyrion quote. Because uh, to some extent, it almost feels like it's more about Tyrion's brother, right? And not about Rob, as we find out yeah. at the end of this chapter. He was willing to risk it all. I He actually literally was. And Raimi. Oh my god. Uh, well, I think that is the basis, right? Like, I think Scad uses that uh, within the in fiction. Anyway, weird tinfoil, green boy. What if it has to do with, like, the green seer thing? Is there a double entendre? Anyway. Hallis had the honor to protect Catelyn in battle as Winterfell's captain of guards. This was his right, and Rob hadn't refused him of it. A guard of 30 men keeps Catelyn safe, ready to take her to Winterfell if the fighting goes south, southern, southern. (laughs) Chloe wrote this, and I wanted to try and stress that for her. Um, Thank you. 
Rahav wanted 50 men to protect her. And she was like, 10 is enough. He needs the swords for his fight. So they come to this like compromise of 30. And I do love that this is once more a show of Catelyn's practicality, but also this, I think, sort of like self-effacing like instinct as she insists that there be more men, as you were talking about earlier, right? Uh, to protect her son. Yeah, it's such a give and take, a compromise. And I, I do love that it- it's that compromise, that hard compromise, right? That, well, both of us lose, but I guess in an okay way. And this little line that she says to him, oh, it's chilling, especially knowing mm. where we are in the story. It will come when it comes, Catalan told him. When it came, she knew it would mean death. Hal's death, perhaps, or hers, or Rob's. No one was safe. No life was certain. <sighs> just goosebumps. It feels like this chapter is just writhing with Ned foreshadowing, right? Mm-hmm. Like Ned dies in two chapters. <laughs> Spoiler. <What>? And <laughs> this is a reread. That, I am wait, stressing. What the fuck? <laughs> Why would you just say that? <laughs> You're right. He wargs into, sorry, skin changes into pigeons. And, <laughs> and the sword. And the sword. Yes. And ill in pain. Yes. And the bread. Look, it, it could be argued that this chapter, Rob's success, is that dramatic tension that you have to have a loss for, mm. right? Like you can't have this big win near the end of the story. And have the northern plot continue to hinge on that and make sense. Like, it's not enough momentum. Ned's death comes as a huge gut punch as the underwolves kind of, you know, suffer. They just won so hard. Uh, If I didn't know that Ned died, you know, reading this for the first time again, I wonder what I felt like when I read it because it's been a while. Uh, But it would just kick my ass after finally realizing he dies to come back to this and be like, wow, he really was trying to nail home that Ned's about to go (laughs) bye-bye. Yeah, pretty much. And besides Ned, which this is definitely setting up for, I think there's also an aspect of irony to this line when taken in the context of actually Catelyn's own death, because... We see Catelyn can accept death in battle, that she or her son like might die here, because she accepts as a rule that sometimes men die in battle, or when they leave home for war, as with Brandon Stark. Not war, but you know. But there's this yeah. sense of acceptance of death with Catelyn's line of like, it will come when it comes, that is just entirely lacking in Lady Stoneheart, and also in Cat's final moments with that scream, or not the scream, but right, as she's clawing her face. There's none of the grace and acceptance, and especially like none of the honor, because yeah, you can expect to die in battle. I mean, that's what happens when men go to war, when people go to war in general, mm-hmm. but no one expects to die betrayed by comrades at your dinner table after doing the sacred rites. <sighs> This is just like such a great tension build in this chapter. You can feel the tension and it it carries a lot of weight through the next two books for this plot, I think. Yes, it does. There's, uh, I mean, again, a lot of the setup for things happens in Catelyn's chapter. And I think that's also partially because that huge twist does occur in her chapters. The next yes. one, not Ned's, the other Stark one, the <laughs> other painful. <laughs> Catelyn is content to wait. She had been waiting for men her whole life. True. (laughs) I actually really love this line. Again, the music of the prose is so prominent, and here she feels music too. Catelyn was content to wait, to listen to the whispers in the woods and the faint music of the brook, to feel the warm wind in her hair. 
The language here is actually pretty similar to the children of the forest and how they're described in the world of ice and fire. Mm. It's definitely something we'll return to in a storm of swords five when we head once more through the wood to go to old stones and, you know, we trample past all the carnage. That's fun. So in the world of ice and fire, it's described in the dawn age with regards to the children. He was taken to a secret place to meet with them, but could not at first understand their speech, which was described as sounding like the song of stones in a brook, or wind through leaves, or the rain upon the water. The manner in which Brandon learned to comprehend the speech of the children is a tale in itself, and not worth repeating here, but it seems clear their speech originated or drew inspiration from the sounds they heard every day. I love the magical nature and language in this chapter, like the howling of the wolves repeated through the horns, not just here, but also at the Green Fork during Tyrion's chapter when Winterfell descends that we'll kind of chat about today. And of course, this, this magical nature and language, this is where the children of the forest would be, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I didn't realize, it really feels like they're withholding something there. Not worth men- repeating here. Okay. 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 Yeah. There's a lot of that in the world of ice and fire. Yeah. Let's be real. <laughs> Absolutely. That's that's part of it. And yeah. So as you said, I mean, the imagery and the use of sound in this chapter is really great. And we're gonna bring it up again and again. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> Watch for me, little cat. Her father would tell her when he rode off to court or to battle, and she always would watch for him from the battlements of Riverrun as he left. And he'd ask her when she came back, did you watch for me, little cat? And I'm just like, ugh. Ugh. I don't know why this memory, like, my heart breaks for Catelyn as she thinks of this memory from, like, her girlhood. That, like, of all the men in her life, you can see that to Cat, I think Hoster Tully was the only one who never let her down. Uh, it must be really nice being the eldest child and also the favorite, which is... I don't think her siblings got that same treatment. <laughs> and do not have the same fond memories of their father. But the emphasis on, mm-hmm. even when he broke his promises of when he'd be back, he still came back to her as her hero, unlike all of these Stark men. Especially here, there's almost that sense of the Blackfish mm. uh, seeing him do the planning with Rob that we're going to see. She has to let him go, too. Yeah. You know? yeah. She, he's, uh, he's still her favorite uncle, but now he has to help her son win wars, win a kingdom. Save a kingdom. Yeah, he's no longer this comforting figure for her. He's now has to be a protector. And he has been, like, emotionally for them, but now physically. <laughs> but yeah, while she's thinking of that, Brynden, she's also thinking of Brandon. Brandon ah. had bitter to wait as well, saying that they'd wed on her return. But when the day came for them to wed, it was actually his brother that she wed. You might know him. His name's Ned. Um... He rode off barely a fortnight later, promises on his lips. I love that, with promises on his lips. He ate her out. Oh my god. Why is her vagina full of promises? (laughs) It's the Lord's kiss. (laughs) He knew where to put it. God damn it. So, back when we talked about Nedward... Nedward Stark here, uh, way back when, you know, we mentioned that he thinks often of the promises that he failed to keep, right? Not just the promise. So when we think of the promise with Ned, we think of Lyanna dying in her bed of blood saying, promise me, Ned, promise me, because the sucker won't stop thinking of it himself, right? 
Of course, that's what we think of. (laughs) I've read these books. But he also always thinks, like, when he slept, he dreamed dark, disturbing dreams of blood and broken promises. And this right here is one of those promises, right? Uh, He he wrote off, promised he'd be true to her and said, okay, well, hopefully I put a baby in you, cat, and I'll go, you know, take your dad's swords and try to do some good in the world. Be back later. Be back later. Promise I'll come back. And now we get to see that through Cat's POV. We get to see her remembering that. And it's sweeter than it is bitter right now because he's not dead yet, right? Sweeter than it is bitter. She reflects that at least Ned had given her a son, not just words. Nine moons wax and wane and Rob's birth had come to Riverrun while Ned was warring in the south. She brought him forth in blood and pain, not knowing if Ned would get to meet him. And now it's Rob that she waits for. Rob. Jamie Lannister, the gilded knight who never learned to wait at all, according to Brynden. Interesting that she slips Jamie in there, I guess, among the people that she's waiting for. Um, slips what about him in? Oh. Um, oh, sorry, what's pro- that? <laughs> promises on his lips. Uh, I will say, though, that this entire sequence, right, drawn from Hoster to Brandon to Ned to Rob, is just masterful, right? I mean, like, the, the promises that you were talking about beautifully pairs well with as you said ned's ned's chapters which are the same book right it it, it like really drives that home but also here Mm -hmm. regarding all of those men in her lives george spells Mm -hmm. out the conceit of this chapter i think very explicitly for the reader later on with the line of catelyn sat on her horse unmoving with hal mullen and her guard around her and she waited as she had waited before for brandon and ned and her father and, like, I don't know what else he would have written instead of that line, but to be honest, I don't even know if he needed that line because he just paints that pattern so well right here and just shows rather than tells, like, this entire sequence of, and I mean, he even says it explicitly at the top, right, of her men had mm-hmm. always made her wait. It's Catelyn as literally a lady in waiting, and she's waiting for the man who did come back, the man who didn't the man who did his duty, and now her son. And as you pointed out, this passage is so especially painful, knowing that Ned dies, knowing that, like, as Kat waits for her husband, like, the man that she has come to love, that this time he will not return to her, just as Brandon didn't return, and as Hoster never returns to her, even when she goes <laughs> to see him soon. He, he's kind of gone, and as Rob will never return to her, no matter what she does or how much vengeance she exacts. And Okay, Satan. <laughs> we're, not even, we're not even done with the hurtful comments, because I think that there's something there, too, right? To be said of how Catelyn sees her own role as a woman. To wait. To wait. A life built around men. Because is that not how a good lady should live? She's waiting dutifully for the men. But what happens when all your men you love are gone? Lady Stoneheart is not the patient Catelyn. There's no one to wait for. Only death. <laughs> I hate these books so much. and It's just going to get worse. Uh, no, it is a very beautiful and sad and bittersweet progression. And... Of course, Rob is one of the saddest parts of it that we're focused on in this chapter because it's in front of us. If Rob was frightened, he gave no sign of it. He moves among his men, he shares jests, he touches their shoulders, 
She wonders when her son had grown so big. Fifteen, almost as tall as she is. And then... It hurts really bad. Do I have to read it? Okay. She thinks, Let him grow taller, she asks the gods. Let him know sixteen, and twenty, and fifty. Let him grow as tall as his father and hold his own son in his arms. Please, please, please. This is not a good chapter. It's a very cruel chapter, and it's really mean. It is a mean chapter on a reread. On like a first read, you're like, oh yeah, sick. Fighting. Nope. We should have known. I this know. was the point. Why, why? We were so foolish. And we didn't even know Ned either, right? If you read this before the show uh, and you're yeah. reading it the first time, you had no clue the Arya chapter was going to be Ned dying, right? Because it's an Arya chapter. At first, you're like, what? And then it happens. You're like, what? And you're like, did that what? really happen? Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this is a this is a gut punch because you're so distracted with the success of this battle and of her thoughts of Rob growing old. We should have known. We should have known better. Yeah. Catelyn watches him and his direwolf prowl. Him and his beard. All she sees is the tiny baby they laid at her breast in River Run. The thoughts enough to make her shiver. Where are they? She wondered. Could her uncle have been wrong? So much rested on the truth of what he had told them. Three hundred men were riding with the Blackfish to screen the march ahead of time, and when he arrives finally back to camp, he tells them Jamie's host is completely unaware. The archers had shot down any birds heading towards them and killed all of his outriders. His host is still pretty large. It's 12,000 foot in three camps around the river and 3,000 horse. They have them three to one, but the Blackfish thinks the Lannister camp outside of River One will be their undoing, because it's one way in, leaving pretty much their asses out in the air. They hope they'll be able to outlast Jamie's troops with their bonus, patience, something Jamie Lannister does not have. Yeah, so again, there's a lot of setup exposition, then payoff internally within Kat's individual chapters, and this is one of those, right, where Jamie's impatience does him in, it gets him captured. But it also just resonates really well with what we've been talking about within this chapter, where yes, the men going into battle may have more patience than Jamie, but do any of them have more patience than Catelyn? Again, just waiting. <laughs> yeah, that's not... You're not... <laughs> Their host had grown since leaving the twins. <laughs> Seaguard's power arrived with Lord Jason Nallister, as well as the other hedge knights, small lords, and masterless men-at-arms fleeing the war beneath the walls of Riverrun. And I'm just like, wow, both Jason Nallister and Jamie Lannister are here. And I actually have never noticed until like just now how much their names rhyme. And I'm like, wow. No wonder Kat is only thinking about waiting for Rob in this chapter and not Ned. I deserve no I mean, good things. <laughs> I, I'm gonna be honest with you that no, really, she's busy. She's got she's this is like busy. Westerosi girl eye candy going on. Okay, like yeah. you're sitting there and you're like, ooh, muscled knights, and they're gonna go bloody some guys up. You know, the blood's all red. Probably brings back to the good old days of just like being young and fucking and whatever. I don't know. I mean, she didn't do that, but know. yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah, I mean, kind of. She fucked once. Six times. At least. Five. At least. Yeah, she was trying, so at least six times legally. Yeah. <sighs> no, I, uh, I. it's a thirsty chapter. 
I mean, it's not only is it a tense chapter, it's a thirsty chapter. We're going to get into some thirst for Mr. Jason Malister and Jamie here, I guess. Poor cat. Yeah, I know, right? She's like, all right, we just got A bereft wait. housewife. Oh. If only they could just teach her the plug-in-the-wall Hitachi sort of thing. Oh my god. Bring her bring her all the way up to, you know, that's why in the original 93 letter, she goes all the way up to the wall where they have that ivory dildo. My god. She's just waiting for that Bronze Age, if you know what I mean. So, Oliver Frey, one of Walder's younger and more anxious sons, holds Rob's horse as he mounts, helping him armor up. Suddenly, Rob is transformed. It's amazing. It's a physical transformation once he's armored and helmed and seated on the horse, and he's now a tall, young knight. Cat can only see black inside his visor in the night. Sounds like it might be foreshadowing. Oh, uh, sad. <laughs> death. Sad. I mean, I'm thinking of Bran's vision over uh, Gregor mm-hmm. in this moment, right? Seeing the, the black from the helm and Gregor Clegane transformed into Robert Strong. But this is a much different physical transformation. It's a little more metaphorical. This is his lord's face, right? He's put on his lord's face through armor and helm. And it signals that transition of his boyhood being over, that innocence being gone. And we'll see the effect of that transition soon, actually with blood, pretty symbolically. Uh, It's not so different from Sansa in A Clash of Kings getting her period in that aspect. Rob's a man now. He's killed. He survived battle, war. Uh There's so much imagery of these knights and, and the last armored fierce men on the field, Jamie, Rob. And I think it's really pointed that in the very next chapter... Cal Drogo actually falls from his horse, and that's uh, seen as a very big thing. Danny turned away from them. He fell from his horse. It was so she had seen it, and the blood riders, and no doubt her handmaids, and the men of her costs as well, and how many more? They could not keep it secret, and Danny knew what that meant. A cow who could not ride could not rule, and Drogo had fallen from his horse. For Rob, this is such a symbolic moment, and even later in the next chapter with Jorah, ugh, he outlines carefully for Daenerys what happens when a cal is lost in the Kalasar, and I, I feel like it's really kind of fitting to some of the stuff that happens after Rob dies. Mm. Princess, hear me. The Dothraki will not follow a suckling babe. Drogo's strength was what they bowed to, and only that. When he is gone, Jaco and Pono and the other coasts will fight for his place, and this Kalasar will devour itself. The winner will want no more rivals. The boy will be taken from your breast the moment he's born. They'll give him to the dogs. So that's a much more graphic version of what Kat is relaying to Rob and trying to instill in him in this chapter, but it's not dissimilar. Uh, it's hard for her to find that strength in her heart to not look at him as the, the babe on her teat. Right, and to look at him as this man on the horse and let him go in her heart and let him grow up. But that line does resonate with what happens when Rob is gone, right, with the Northern Lords. The winner will want no more rivals. The boys will be taken from your breasts the moment he's born. They'll feed him to the dogs. That's some Bolton action right there. Yeah, it actually is. It's very much indicative of what the Boltons do to the North. Next book. And you know, the the line that you have, or this this passage, right, it's a great comparison that you've pulled of the Dothraki following strength, and I think it lends some credence and, and some perspective to why Kat feels such pride for her son, alongside the fear for him, of course. She sees her son 
in this armor looking like a lord, as you said, and, and stepping into that role of a man of manhood in Westeros, doing what he must do for his father, a family mm-hmm. as a lord, duty, and here in battle, honor, all three of the House Tully words, and that even like Oliver Frey, right, who's dressing him, is his elder by two years, that he seems like a boy next to Rob, according to, you know, filtered through Kat's perspective, it just shows that so much was on Rob's shoulders, and it's kind of sad that he had to step up and do all of this at 15 years old. I was a fucking mess at 15, and he makes one mistake, right? How many mistakes do so many people make all the time as teenagers? And we see Rob as this like very, I think, perfect child in many ways. Then he makes one mistake for love of his brother. Mm-hmm. Not, not for love of Jane Westerling, for the love of his brother, and then it all falls apart. Yeah, and that isn't that dissimilar from what Ned did, right? For the love of his sister. Wow, yeah, true. True. We'll definitely come back to that. The sister who's the mother of the brother. <laughs> uh, in quotes, uh, this brother. Shit is brother. A telenovela. It this actually is. A is. Telenovela. It Jane is. the Virgin, watch out, girl. You gotta go. I do love No, but for real, she really does. I love telenovela. Well, I, lo- I more have watched a lot of Filipino teleseries. Similar energy. I'm there sure are a couple Korean ones I really love. Yeah. Some sure. Korean dramas I'm really into. For um, sure. Well, back to our <laughs> drama. Rob bids his mother farewell. He tells her he learned from father he must ride up and down the line before battle to let the men see him. Compared to Joffrey in Blackwater there. Yeah. She agrees. He says it will give them courage. But she wonders to herself, who will give me courage? She gives him nothing but her pride and her smile, quietly, and he rides his horse away from her, Grey Wind following. Yeah. I kind of like the way that Rob says that. He's like, it'll give them courage. And I guess he's like, I'm not really sure if it will, but that's what I've been told. (laughs) But He's like, I'll fucking try anything. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, dude. And I get it. You're like, all right, all I gotta do is run in front of them in a horse. And so I have a confession. All right. I used to hate... These, like, hypothetical self-questions that, like, come up so often and recur as part of, I think, Kat's thinking voice um, Mm -hmm. in her chapters when I was first reading these books in 2012 and 13. I found them so annoying um, as part of, yeah, that narrative device to signal this is Kat's interiority. But rereading these so many times, I've, you know, I've grown, and I, I could be swayed either way on the delivery, but I think that the sentiment of this particular question of who will give me courage is just brilliant. Mm-hmm. All these men in her life have been like singing a girl worth fighting for. Um, <laughs> and for them, it's Kat, right? She's the girl worth fighting for. But across Westeros, right? Someone else is thinking the same thing. Perhaps there's an argument to be made that like the patience Kat exhibits is one that a lot of women and girls must have throughout Westeros. And I argue maybe it's one of the most difficult traits to cultivate because there's a huge sense of helplessness to it. Kat would rather give up 40 protectors, right? Feel that she's contributed something to the effort of her son's survival. But truly at the end, for those who can do nothing but wait, the ones who have to carry the hopes and the fears of the men around them and be that, I mean, kind of emotional crutch, right? Who is going to give those people courage? Who will pick them up and support them? And... Already, Catelyn's womanhood is so isolated, and part of that is actually because George didn't think to write more ladies in waiting for her the way that 
you know, he, he starts to build out later on. But I also think of the Blackwater, right? Of the people in the Red Keep. Who would give them courage? I wonder if Cersei perhaps asked herself the same question. And we see, right? She almost seems like she's given up. Sansa had no one to give her courage. And she's like, well, you know, fuck it. I'm going to have it anyway. And she tries to muster it in herself and cultivate it in the people around her. But for the most part, there is no cheerleader for the women and girls. And again, in terms of who will give her courage, who will do that emotional support, I'm pulling a line from, in the future, A Clash of Kings Cat 2. She woke aching and alone and weary, weary of riding, weary of hurting, weary of duty. I want to weep, she thought. I want to be comforted. I'm so tired of being strong. I want to be foolish and frightened for once. Just for a small while, that's all. A day. An hour. I think about that all the time. That haunts me, just so you know. Every day I think that. Sometimes when I have to hit my snooze button, I think that. <laughs> I do that. One more hour. I think five, that all the time. Five more minutes. <laughs> my clock will be snooze. like 6.45 a.m. And I'm looking at it and I was like, I just want to be comforted. I'm tired of waking up for work. I want to be foolish and comforted and frightened for once. I'm just so another sorry. hour. <laughs> Uh, yeah for a small while thanks for that time travel forward i love the point you're making there but now you've depressed me again we're back at it can't wait till the next book it's a depressing Uh, chapter okay but it is the saddest right because uh, as they gallop off in a minute to war it's just her with hal mullen and her small guard and None of these men, she doesn't really know or love them in the way she loves Rob and Ned and Hofster and Brynden. And Jason. And these men don't know her that way, and they can't. And Jason. And Jamie. Wait a second. What? what if we put the prisoner on the honor guard? No, I'm just kidding. Um, it goes so terribly. It could be a fun. I don't know. Add a little southern tea to that northern oh. mix. Okay. Uh, <laughs> When Rob forced Catelyn to take protectors, she declared he too needed a guard. So that formed the Battle Guard, Torin Karstark, Eddard Karstark, Patrick Malister, Small John Umber, Darren Hornwood, Theon Greyjoy, at least five Freys, Wendell Manderley, Robin Flint, and a few others amounting to about 30. I do love this. Uh, It's sad because, of course, it ends a little bit in disaster later for a few of them. But one of these is Daisy Mormont. Yes. That also ends in disaster. Yeah. Yeah. Lanky, six foot tall and lanky. Daisy is the heiress to Bear Island in the north and had been given a morning star at such an age when girls get dolls. Some of the lords muttered about Daisy's affliction, you know, womanhood, but Catelyn would not hear of it. This is not about the honor of your houses, she told them. This is about keeping my son alive and whole. And if it comes to that, she wondered, will 30 be enough? Will 6,000 be enough? A bird called faintly in the distance, a high, sharp trill that felt like an icy hand on Catelyn's neck. Another bird answered, a third, a fourth. She knew their call well enough from her years at Winterfell. Snow shrikes. Sometimes you saw them in the deep of winter when the godswood was white and still. They were northern birds. They are coming, Catelyn thought. Hal Mullen, a man known for stating the obvious apparently, whispers that they are coming, and she whispers, gods be with us in return. 
And regarding the stuff that you were saying earlier, Chloe, about uh, Daisy Mormon, it's a little groundwork, right, for how Kat might feel when meeting Brienne. I almost wonder, is this icy hand on Catelyn's neck? Is that something that, like, is this, like, foreshadowing for something that was maybe in the 93 letter? Mmm. It feels like it could be. That's interesting. Now that you say it, like, the icy hand on the neck, especially because she was going to go north and possibly become an other, feels pretty pretty apt. But also now it can just be a death metaphor. Yeah, now it's obviously a death metaphor, right? But there's something about it that feels so pointed. Zombie? Um, White? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And knowing knowing what we know was in the 93 letter and how sometimes Catelyn thinks like, oh, I just want to choke out Cersei Lannister. That's a little sexual too. Um, <laughs> anyway, coming back to, to what we actually have here though, you know, Catelyn thinks they are coming, right? When she sees the snow strikes and how Mullen says the exact same thing after she speaks, just voices that aloud, which I think, again, it speaks to something that we've been talking about of, again, how much Catelyn has internalized those northern symbols and visual language. She understands this even before the Northman has to tell her. She hears the tread of horses, the rattle of swords, spear, armor, the murmur of voices, a laugh, a curse, the sounds grow louder, laughter, commands, splashing, horses, and finally, at long last, for an instant, she sees him. Sir Jamie Lannister and his golden hair and the silver moonlight. Ooh, ooh, he's so sexy, Catelyn thinks. She doesn't, like, think that explicitly. Uh, but, but why else would she gaze upon him in the moonlight like this and think he's gilded? I mean, this is our podcast. We can say what we want. It's written in a way that you're like, oh my god, they are in the branches. It's something hopeful. And then, like... No, it's a. Uh, it's it's, it's, it's <laughs> the enemy. It's the bad guy. <laughs> and the language is very admiring. But I guess actually that's how all the Starks talk about him now that I think about it. Even Ned being like, oh, how he glittered. And I'm like, no one talks like that, Ned. But it's a good line. Good job. Great writing. Um, <laughs> it does feel very like. I don't know. Is jo- Do they does talk George about it? Just have a big boner. I don't know. Maybe I wonder. They if- must. Yeah, I, I bet. I bet. Like in bed. I bet they're both just like. No, I hate Jamie Lannister more. No, I hate Jamie Lannister more. And they're just like fucking about his beautiful silver costume. Yeah, pretty much. That's I think. I do think now. That's what Catelyn and <laughs> Ned do. They're like, remember Jamie's golden hair? Did. And then did. The- yeah. Sorry. That is what they did. Maybe Shit, in the afterlife, the when her soul is sent away. Yeah. The, and then, like, in death, they're like, yo, remember Jamie Lannister? <laughs> Do you think our souls can fuck in the afterlife? I think oh, so. I think they have to. Anyways, let's talk about this language about Jamie Lannister's little cosplay here. The moonlight had silvered his armor and the gold of his hair and turned his crimson cloak to black. He was not wearing a helm. He was there. And he was gone again, his silvery armor obscured by the trees once more. Butterfly meme. Is this foreshadowing? It certainly feels it, right? It's similar to his weirwood dreams later, in a way. Kind of just the imagery of how he sees other people. Uh, But the crimson cloak turning to black. Right? Could even be Night's Watch imagery or an outline of when George maybe thought of that or him going north or him abandoning his Lannister color even. 
it does remind me of John, right? Like strongly reminds me of John. And I don't know. I thought it was interesting. He's wearing his silver armor too and not Mm. his gold. That's true. That's true. And like Jamie's cloak is a matter of much symbolism, right? Cloaks in general are a matter of much symbolism in these books, which is why it like stands out so much and also things turning into other colors. And I don't know. It's also possible that like the way I'm reading that icy hand around Catelyn's neck, it could be like, I don't know, book one stuff that got gardened away that was maybe set up for something in the 93 letter. Um, Like you said, Mm -hmm. maybe George was playing with this idea before. Um, You know, like all that imagery earlier on in this very same book of Jamie really looking like a king. And in the 93 letter, Jamie was supposed to steal the throne. So I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it's just to boost the king stuff. Who knows? Yeah, maybe it's just fancy words i don't know but it feels Maybe important they will find out yeah it feels important <sighs> waiting um we're always waiting for george you know that's true like, do you see me chloe and eliana wait for me while eliana we're waiting, george. was not content to wait not content to listen to the whispers in the woods and the faint music of the brook <laughs> to feel the warm not wind content in my hair at all the outside <sighs> Don't give me outside. Give me fantasy books. Anyways. <laughs> Behind Jamie, there's long columns of free riders, knights, and sworn swords that have come. And 75% of the Lannister's horse. Rob and Brendan had continued to make plans. Brendan warning him that Jamie is no man to sit in a tent while carpenters build siege towers. And Rob studied the map with him because Ned had taught Rob to read a map. And they planned to read them here. And here, and it means nothing to you when I point. Um, but turns here turns out to be a hushed area of moonlight, shadows, and dead leaves. And it's Catelyn's son on his stallion, giving Catelyn one last look goodbye as he lifts his sword in salute. Ugh. Okay, Mage calls on her warhorn to announce Jamie's riders entering the trap, and Greywind throws his head back, and ooze. Catelyn thinks it's a frightening, terrible sound, but there's music in it as well. It's a song of ice and fire. For a moment, she feels pity for the Lannisters below, thinking that this is what death sounds like. <laughs> Don't get too haughty there, Catelyn. <laughs> next. <laughs> oh, that's Just sad. two books. Yeah, it's sad. The Grey John <laughs> winds his own horn, and the trumpets of the Malisters and Freys blow theirs as well. They blow... Vengeance. I don't know if that's what the phrase blow, but um, the Karstarks join their own horns to the chorus, and men and horses alike shout and rear in the stream below. The whispering wood let out its breath all at once, as the bowmen Rob had hidden in the branches of the trees let fly their arrows, and the night erupted with the screams of men and horses. All around her, the riders raised their lances, and the dirt and leaves that had buried the cruel points fell away to reveal the gleam of sharpened steel. Winterfell, she heard Rob shout as the arrows sighed again. He moved away from her at a trot, leading his men downhill. Catelyn sat on her horse, unmoving, with Hal Mullen and her guard around her, and she waited as she had waited before for Brandon and Ned and her father. I, I will so say, good. just like, Jesus fucking Christ, that, that first line. I'm going to read it again. It's just so good. 
The whispering wood let out its breath all at once. Ugh. Ugh. I just love how George transforms, you know, and, and plays with the name of the whispering wood to, as, as you were pointing out earlier, bring this chapter to life through the sounds and these other senses when our sight is often obscured and that we cannot see and we're helpless and waiting and we're just also trying to glean information from the chaos. George does something, I think, beautifully mimetic in how the, the writing positions the reader together with Catelyn's point of view, both helpless to take action and waiting for the outcome. Yeah, the personification of nature is just so strong, letting out its breath all at yes. once. <laughs> and, you know, it's interesting how he builds the trap of it all. If you, obviously, we, we know there's a trap at the Green Fork, right? We, we learned that. And he doesn't outright say there's a trap in this chapter until when Brynden is kind of going over plans. He hints at it, but you still don't know exactly what the trap mm -hmm. is necessarily. And then here... The trap comes out. The emergence of the men from nature. It's amazing. It's just like an amazing little trap. And we see that come back so much later, right? Uh, the Northmen pull that again with Asha. Yeah. And if you don't know what's going to happen, if you if they don't tell you the whole plan. I, and I guess that's part of what leads you astray, right? Because you do hear some of the plan from Rob. And so you think like, oh, I don't know. They're going to attack them. Yeah, they're both holding that last thing. Because yeah, usually the construction, right, is if you know the plan, then it's going to go to shit. But if you don't. Mm -hmm. It's gonna work. Then it goes well. <laughs> and that is why except Series for this time. 6, The Battle of the <laughs> oh Bastards. Oh my god, No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That one oh my was poorly god. constructed. <sighs> that one well, was okay, done, and then but... there was Season 7. Don't get me started. But I do want a devil's advocate for something uh, <laughs> construction-wise. This does remind me, this passage right here, thinks, makes me think of The Bad Show, of uh, the show the books were based on. And it reminds me of Sansa watching that Winterfell battle. I wonder if we could actually see this come back in some actual, sensible, logical way in the book uh, of Sansa waiting atop a horse from afar at Winterfell because of how Winterfell is set a little lower, for example, uh, or being made to wait while the fighting happens. I mean, obviously, again, I preface this with the bad show because it happened at the bad show, but... I could certainly see that happening. Sansa coming back with the Veil vale Knights and waiting from afar to stay out of the danger. I could too, yeah. It would make a lot more sense than it did in the show. Um, but I was also thinking like you could see that sort of, I think, recur. Mm -hmm. I mean, she is also a lady-in-waiting, right? As we That's know, true. the princess in the tower throughout all of this. Yeah, but unlike Kat, you know, where Kat has wonderful memories of her father coming back and being like, did you wait for me, little Kat? Sansa's memories are of her father being beheaded right in front of her. Exciting. Uh, the Great John's riders emerge, <laughs> descending down on the Lannisters, and the valley rings with echoes. Lannister, Winterfell, Tully, Riverrun, Tully. She realizes there's nothing else she can see. She just has to close her eyes and listen to the sound of swords on shields, steel on steel, the thunder of drums, hiss of arrows, and men shouting and begging for mercy. Over at the other side there, at the Green Fork, I do want to comment that uh, they are shouting for Winterfell as well, from Tyrion's chapter. As he wrenched the blade free, he heard a shout. Eddard! A voice rang out. For Eddard and Winterfell! The knight came thundering down on him, swinging the spiked ball of a morning star around his head. 
I like this line just because it makes me think of Arya's chapter later on when she mm. herself is screaming, Winterfell! Winterfell! Uh, when the Night's Watchmen that she's traveling with get attacked, which is actually also a very sad moment, but I, it's funny because she's yelling Winterfell and Hot Pie's yelling Hot Pie, so it hot has pie, levity. Yeah, it's my favorite part. <laughs> it's the cutest, um, except for the part where they're being attacked as children. Anyways, um, there's also like a line in here somewhere, and I didn't grab it, where Catelyn's also, if I if I remember correctly, thinking of the people who, you know, they're injured in battle and they may die and or not in parentheses or something and or be given the gift of mercy or not and i'm like oh interesting mm. that that comes up in this chapter mercy 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 <sighs> yeah speaking of aria bringing that up again well the way that the valley is situated plays tricks on catlin at one point she hears rob calling to me to me and gray wind snarling he must snarl very loudly mm-hmm. Growling and snapping his teeth, tearing of flesh, shrieks of fear. There's this line of, was there only one wolf? It was hard to be certain. Just like, hashtag Rob Stark was a warg. Mood, I would die on that hill. That he was like, I think, maybe the most proficient after Bran. I mean, I would hope so, honestly, only because we don't get the POV. I hope there's all sorts of badass shit going on there. I'm gonna be honest. Yeah. But it does make sense, uh, especially because Grey Wind is just in the battle going. And I don't know, to go back to some of those Jamie chapters we once talked about, when he's in it, in battle, you know, with his sword and all, and he's swinging it around. And uh, I mean, even the, the chapter with Brienne, where they're both fighting and sparring, right? That is so passionate. <laughs> we, we've talked about that, too. It's very passionate, as we talked <laughs> about with Jamie. passionate. Oh, passionate, passionate sword dancing. And... I mean, this is, Rob has to put his whole heart and soul into it. And to borrow from our other series, His Dark Materials, it kind of reminds me of when the heroine in that series reads her magical alethiometer and has to put her brain into a whole nother, Mm. a whole nother state of being, you know, like she has to put her, her thought process into like this different feeling. And I imagine it's similar for Warging, right? Like I kind of imagine... From what we know from Arya firsthand and Bran, you have to kind of just, like, change your state of being <laughs> into an animal's. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know, when you're in the zone killing people and slashing and there's blood everywhere and you're you're just in fight or flight and you're probably in panic mode, too. Uh, but you're just in shock. And I can imagine that would make it easy to slip into an animal. Yeah. In this magic. It's just a boy and his dog in the midst of oh battle. <laughs> Yep, just a boy, just a dog. Just a boy, just a dog. More obvious. The sounds dwindle (laughs) until there's only the wolf. And as a red sun breaks in the east, Greywind howls again. And throughout the chapter, we see that Greywind's howl acts as a battle horn, this wolf howl. And maybe, I wonder if there's something like there, right, that we might see later on as a connection between the wolves, the north, and I don't know, some of the other horns that we see, especially like Jormans. Yeah. That's a great thought. I never really thought about that, but that's actually, because I I really thought that was prominent, how the wolf howls, especially in the Tyrion chapter too, are just like... Paired. Mm-hmm. 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 Uh, now that I think about it, and like, this is now I'm veering into tinfoil, but how no one really hears ghosts howl, though allegedly some people have heard it from far away, maybe really, really far away. 
And yet, you mm. know, they blow. I, I know there's a theory, right, that the horn found at the Fist of the First Men is Jorman's horn. They blow into it once and there, no sound comes out. Silent, but not. Hmm. Thoughts. Anyways. Tinfoil. Hmm. Hmm. I like it. Speaking of animals, Rob returns on a different horse than he left on. That's sad. Um, yeah. For the horse. Hmm. And his wooden shield, adorned with the wolf's head, is slashed to pieces, but he is unhurt. And that one is actually foreshadowing. That one, definitely for sure. We know this. Um, uh, ow. Yeah. <sighs> we do get his surcoat is covered in blood. His glove is covered in blood. And Catalan at first is like, oh my god, are you hurt? But no, it is someone else's blood, right? Probably Torin's. And <sighs> uh, that is just so metaphorical, as we said. That's Rob's first blood. That's mm-hmm. his uh that's his first bleeding. And the language reminds me a little bit also of the bread riot in King's Landing with Sansa and the hound in the man's arm. Uh the line here is and this is how Rob plays it, right? It's pretty pretty traumatized, pretty in shock. This is Torrance blood, perhaps, or he shook his head. I do not know. And then in the bread riot, when they get Sansa, she says, A man tried to pull me from the saddle. The hound killed him, I think. His arm, her eyes widened and she put a hand over her mouth. He cut off his arm. Rob turning from child to adult on that horse, returning with a different horse, returning from battles, having seen these terrors of war. He thought he was ready, but it turns out no one is ready to go decimate another human being, right? It makes sense why these broken men we meet in story, like the soon-to-be-here Jamie Lannister, have turned this part of themselves off and tried to mute it mm-hmm. and stop themselves from feeling in order to kind of compartmentalize and survive. Rob watched Lord Karstark's sons die, be murdered for his life to protect him. Summer and spring is over, innocence is lost, and things are just going to get more complicated from here on out. Yeah, absolutely. It's... Yeah, he's a boy who comes out covered in blood and just the horrors of it all. Mm, something I did think of, too, is the amount of people in his guard. Didn't Ned go to the south with 50 people? Oh, I don't remember. I want to say it was either 50, maybe it was 100, but I think in the streets with Jory feels really uh, prominent here. Yeah. Of this, this small guard, Ned taking a small guard and then... One by one, they're dying in battle. Mm-hmm. The the men that he knows, right? He's <laughs> able to name all name them, and Rob's trying mm-hmm. to, but it's it's just so chaotic. So much is lost, and as you said, especially his innocence. A mob of men follow Rob. They're dirty, dented, and unlike him, though, they're grinning. They're led by Theon and the Greyjohn, dragging Sir Jamie Lannister and delivering him in front of Lady Stark. I'll be Jamie so I can flirt with you. Okay. <laughs> I'm it makes that me in. feel better if I get to just like hit on you, you know. <laughs> Lady Stark, he said from his knees. Blood ran down one cheek from a gash across his scalp, but the pale light of dawn had put the glint of gold back in his hair. I would offer you my sword, but I seem to have mislaid it. It is not your sword I want, sir. She told him, give me my father and my brother Edmure. Give me my daughters. Give me my lord husband. 
I have mislaid them as well, I fear. A pity. The demands that Catelyn makes for her family, right? Uh, the first thing, that's the first thing in the house, Tully words. That's what she asks Jamie to give her. And that repetition of those lines of give me, give me, give me. It's a sentiment that is echoed later in Catelyn's other chapters, where mm -hmm. give me turns into I want, as the world doesn't give her what she wants. It denies it from her. And it's a refrain that comes up actually in the next chapter that I want, I want, I want, not a punctuated ending with I want. That happens in Catelyn's seventh class chapter, but also that, that repetition of the things that she wants, right? That's in her second class chapter in that line that we read aloud mm -hmm. earlier this episode. I'm not sure. I think I might have brought it up before, but also it's connected to Cersei and Jamie in a yes. way because of Jamie and Cersei later, one of the memories of them having sex and her having yelled out, I want, I want, I want, and then just trailing off. Uh, and he knew the whole time that it was not he that she wanted. And what her wants are, Cersei's desires, obviously, and the things that she wants that the world has taken away from her and denied her. And that's the same for Ariane, right? I think you might have brought that up during Ariane's chapter, is that connection of Cersei <sighs> also saying that because Ariane, right, as it really stands out in Ariane's chapter as she thinks of, as she regretfully thinks of Ari's Oakheart, another, you know, another white mm -hmm. knight. And she's just like, I never wanted that. I only wanted, I wanted, I wanted. And again, the things that are denied her, right? Mm -hmm. Similar to Cersei's, as Arian thinks of her birthright and respect, the love of her father. I mean, there's so many things that women want in this series that are denied them. Yeah, absolutely. Every one of the Northerners that came back, they're rowdy, you know, for some guys who just <laughs> murdered are. a bunch of other guys. They're like, oh, we're back. We got the Kingslayer. And Theon's like, kill him, Rob. Take his head off. <laughs> kill him. And I know, right? Like, right in front of him, too. Again, they just don't have a lot of tact, these men. It, it, it's kind of a parallel to what happens to Tyrion, right? Where everyone's just like, you know, yeah. Corbury's like, why don't we just kill him? <laughs> <laughs> well, these guys have had enough. They are the same way. Catelyn's sitting there like, am I the only one in this motherfucking woods? <sighs> <laughs> Rob is like he's more useful alive and Ned never condoned the murder of prisoners after a battle of course Jamie mocks that he's like ah a wise man and honorable I do like that it's kind of a standout point like we do things just slightly different in Winterfell Kingslayer okay just slightly just ever so slightly uh, it does stand out on reread though that Rob reminded them Ned would never kill his prisoners mm-hmm well, in just two chapters. Well, the Lannisters. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And Kill one of their prisoners. Yeah, the one that is very, very, very Lannister. Doubly Lannister, if you will. <laughs> yeah, the most Lannisters they get. The Lannister, yes. The most Lannister blood you can snag. That is some Jonah Ryan and his wife oh, Lannister. You know that, what I'm saying? It actually some is. Some Nabokov. Yeah. Well, Catelyn commands Jamie to be put in chains and taken away, and Rob agrees, advising mm. them to make sure that there's a strong guard around him. Lord Karstark will want his head. Oh my god, interesting. Catelyn, Catelyn gives the order to put him in chains. Hmm. Well. Hmm. Hmm. 
No comment. So the great John agrees. And Catelyn is finally like, all right, I'll bite. What the fuck happened? What's up with the Lord Karstark stuff that keeps coming up? And Rob is like, he gets that same. This is sad. Rob looks away and gets the same brooding look that Ned often gets. And he stutters that Jamie, Jamie killed them. That's real bummer, real PTSD sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gilbert Glover explains the Kingslayer murdered Torin and Eddard Karstark, as well as Darren Hornwood. When he saw the battle lost, Jamie had rallied his retainers, fighting to get to Rob, hoping to cut him down and to institute Rainy, the cannon ship. Jamie's fighting arrogance. Certainly, he's not afraid to die. That's for sure. That is something that is big here. Rob then brings a little callback, though, to Jamie. He's like, Jamie mislaid his sword. <laughs> There's going to be some mislaying of swords. He mislaid his sword in Eddard Karstark's neck after taking Torin's hand off and splitting Darren's skull open. <laughs> the oh. whole time, shouting for Rob. He begins to say, if they hadn't stopped him, and Catelyn finishes for him, I should be mourning in place of Lord Karstark. You know, again, it's not dissimilar to, you know, Jamie and Ned in the streets of King's Landing, killing off his guard. And it's it's sad because it's 15-year-old boy sitting here seeing all these people die in horrendous ways around him. And there's just a lot of neck action going on, though. Mm. Can we talk about that? Splitting Darren's skull open. He's mislaid his sword in Eddard Karstark's neck. A little on the nose, a little heavy-handed and intentional, right? Because Eddard's about to get a sword mislaid in his neck. Literally, soon. Uh, Especially when Catelyn next explains to Rob that these men did what they were meant to do. They died protecting their liege lord. And of course, just to bring uh, bring the head stuff back in, Theon did just moments ago also say to Rob, take his head off about Jaime, which isn't that what Joffrey is you know, jeering to the crowd and to ill and pain soon. Yeah, it's a it's a little on the neck. Yeah, Heads Theon does it. Theon does it too, you know. He's like, yes, yeah. me yeah. too. Roderick, yeah. I too can try to do this. <sighs> yeah, these are all hints. Theon has really been telling us all his th- hints. Like last uh, last chapter, of course, as we said with him being like, well, what if we just took that castle? Who cares if it's impossible? <laughs> <sighs> He's like, I can do anything. Theon in Clash. I cannot do things. (laughs) Well, and of course, these beheadings here are really big in Clash because we get the Mm -hmm. beheaded Karstark thing going on there. More Karstark death. And uh, Theon, of course, with the taking the head off. And Mm. I don't know. I think this is such a glaring difference, again, coming back to what was said about Ned never doing this to his prisoners. Rob refuses to dishonorably harm this hostage, and he's on the principle Ned wouldn't. Ned gets killed Mm. publicly, violently, humiliatingly in front of the entire world and his daughters in just a couple chapters. The immense grief Rob's feeling uh, at seeing Karstark's sons die in battle and at Karstark seeing his sons die in battle and then King's Landing with Arya and Sansa watching their dad die for a joke, for a lark. Yeah. This leads perfectly to those two big losses coming up in these next two chapters. First, we have Drogo and Rhaego for Daenerys and then for Arya and Sansa and Ned. Catelyn's plot is actually pretty parallel here for the next two chapters to what Danny's fight is too. She's meant to be sent home constantly right in the next book 
two books and sent somewhere to be preserved, like a Westerosi trust fund baby doll, whatever. And uh, Danny, in this aspect, is fighting against that too for Vase Dothrak, right? Going home to Vase Dothrak now, being left out of the action, becoming a crone. A blood rider dies with his cow. You know that, child. They will take you to Vase Dothrak, to the crones. That is the last duty they owe him in life. When it's done, they'll join Drogo in the Nightlands. Danny didn't want to go back to Vase Dothrak and live the rest of her life among those terrible old women. Yet she knew that her knight spoke the truth. Drogo had been more than her sun and stars. He had been the shield that kept her safe. I will not leave him, she said stubbornly, miserably. She took his hand again. I will not. Catelyn, I mean, what's left for her? Take care of Rickon and raise him if she can. Well, after Clash, that's not really in the books. She could go home to emptiness, loneliness in those marble walls, and eventually forced to marry off again. She's still young. You know, uh, watch the Lady Hornwood situation go on, even. That's not dissimilar from what could happen with no real guard and no real people in Winterfell to keep her safe or in the South to keep her safe. Neither Catelyn nor Daenerys want that future for themselves, and they both do set out to change that. So much that it could be said it burns them up from within. That's a that's a great point. I haven't thought about that as part of why Catelyn might be reluctant to return home after Clash. And yeah, also it's next? hostile, I guess. I mean, bar- being married off to Roose Bolton, maybe? Yeah. Uh, also, I would point out that it's pronounced Hoster. No, I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. <laughs> what, what are words? <sighs> but, uh, yeah, absolutely. Just get sold off again. Exactly. I mean, Catelyn's fate turns out to be a lot worse. Uh. Yeah, <laughs> sold out for a different reason. She tells Rob to honor Karstark's sons with his valor and to grieve for them, but not now. They have no time. They've won a battle, not a war, and they must save River Run. So you get a little bit here of Catelyn's really codified sense of Westerosi duties in here, along with a dash of classism, coming back to, you know, her love of odes and so forth that we discussed at the beginning of the episode. And yes, she says that one should honor the deaths of the Karstarks, but at the end of a chapter where so many names were thrown out of, like, who's going to guard the young wolf, right, and ensuring his protection, you can sort of see a little bit of she's like, well, I mean, that was their job, to keep you alive. Mm-hmm. And Catelyn, as she often does, and has to, right, she steals herself of any sympathy, I think, for Lord Karstark, which is really interesting because I think Catelyn is, because of her position as a mother, you know, you sometimes think that she would be more sympathetic, but mm-hmm. she's she's very much not, right? Um, or you would be think she was more sympathetic to other characters. She's... She's selectively so, and I think that there's an aspect of Rob's survival that is, I think, understandably, that is understandably selfishness to that. Mm -hmm. Thankfully for her, it was not her own child. Of course, like, her child's the most important of them, because he's, like, the lord, right? Of course he's the most specialist, and the whole thing falls apart without him, as we find out, you know, in book three, whatever. But, I mean, I'm not a parent. (laughs) I'm not sure that most parents that would feel differently from her just then. Yeah, I mean, if it was yours, absolutely. And I mean, I can say, like, I think there's also a part of Catelyn, and this is a part of her right in this, that she's like, well, I, I've suffered and I have to put this out there and this is a risk I have to take. So they're doing the same thing. They're doing their duty. 
and because, you know, she's been made to suffer and had to play the waiting game, quite literally, as we've talked about this chapter. True. And that's systemic, right? Like, that is, I mean, she just thinks these people are there for that purpose in this war. I mean, that's, it's war. Yeah. It's not just picking flowers in the glass gardens anymore. I get it. And in war, you know, as we said earlier, people die, but... Now that I think about it in the context of Lady Stoneheart here, she doesn't really think of, like, I mean, we're, we're told that Lord Karstark wants vengeance for his sons, right? He will probably kill Jamie, even though it's not very advantageous, because we're like, that is a very valuable bargaining chip, Lord Karstark, mm-hmm. all right? We got people we need to get back here from King's Landing. It's very, it's very obvious to everyone that isn't Lord Karstark, to be honest. And yeah. he kills children because of it right and that's that's like completely immoral right and they point that out they're like yo those kids were those kids were innocent right killing them isn't going to bring back your children as alaria points out she's like what will what will vengeance get me like a head can a head sing me songs at night and yet despite all of that and catelyn being like now we're not gonna fucking do that that is who catelyn becomes she becomes like lord karstark just willy-nilly exacting vengeance on people yeah she uh she does a lot of like well if the rules just don't fucking matter anymore let's just hang everyone hang everyone in nooses that's what we do now in this family i mean how can the rules matter when the biggest rule of all has been broken right that the dead come back to life yeah yeah the, it's all made up, and the points do not matter in Westeros by the end of this series. So it is made up. I get it's you. a fictional yeah. series. No. Oh my god! What? <laughs> what? How could you break it to me this way? I thought we were going to wait till the finale. Oh, uh, no. Theon exclaims that he had the time of his life in this battle. He's like, the battle was great, totally great, ten out of ten. The Lannisters <laughs> lost ten men for each of ours that fell. The realm hasn't seen a victory like this since the Field of Fire. I thought this was kind of weird of Theon to say, but it's a very typical Theon thing to say at this point. It's just not like super bright, which again, typical <laughs> Theon thing to say at this point because. I mean, I'm pretty sure that this line is actually just exposition, because again, information dump chapters, but I'm like, Targaryens had three dragons, and I guess I just never really think of the Field of Fire as a huge Targaryen victory. I mean, obviously it is, right? Like, that's very clear. But I feel like Mm -hmm. the Field of Fire is so often framed as this very huge defeat for the other kingdoms, and it's intentionally done so, right? Because it's a cautionary tale. The Field of Fire ends up being used as an example to the other kingdoms of like, alright, so are you going to bend the knee? Are we going to bring like all our dragons over there so you can face the same fate? And the North got that message, loud and clear, and Torin Stark knelt. But this is a very different scenario because the Starks here being victorious, like, Rob isn't kneeling now, and he's not going to Neneal in the next chapter as this book ends, there's a very different outcome, right? But they're like, uh, what if instead of kneeling independence? So I'm just like, Theon Greyjoy, please read a book. Hour. <laughs> well, here's, okay, so I think there's a couple things happening here. I think maybe this was just the first big one that George gardened up. Mm. You know, like, this is the one battle he knew from the top he wanted the Targaryens to have had in full. This is the one he had etched out because... This is, like, the second real big mention of it Hmm. in this book. The first mention we actually get is in Tyrion 2, 
when he's staring at the skull of Beleriand, and it's made reference again in Eddard 11 when the people are petitioning him on the throne and they talk about the fields being fired. So I can see Eddard thinking of it then and like maybe some of the Riverlands idea because they're burning the Riverlands and raising it. I almost wonder if that was where he where the ball stopped, right? Like where he was like, that's where the spin stops. I'm going to do something with that. But it doesn't come back up until Blackwater with Tyrion. The line is a terrible beauty like dragon fire. Tyrion wondered if Aegon the Conqueror had felt like this as he flew above his field of fire. So I don't know, maybe. And then you also have a lot of, uh, you've been talking about the outline, the 93 outline and how a lot changed since then, but a lot of things are still kind of interesting here kind of come up that reminds you of the outline and it almost makes me think maybe he was going to expedite dragons coming to westeros sooner at this point in the story you know in his head i think that's a big one uh maybe he was still in the trilogy mindset (laughs) you know don john danny Tyrion, you know that whole thing because after this so the world of ice and fire starts to get developed Field of Fire is expanded pretty well in it. There are no So Spake Martins expanding on it in detail. So after that, a bunch of other battles of the Targ start to show up. In A Storm of Swords, Sansa and the Tyrells mention Field of Fire. They talk about the Reach's involvement, and he kind of expands a little there. Jamie brings it up with Cleos and Brienne, and then Danny thinks about it in Astapor. But then the Really significant mention we get after that is not even until Dance. Danny recounts it as one of the many tales Viserys told her. So I wonder if, like, at the time, that was just the big one, right? And then he decided on all these other ones, and now there's fire and blood and the dance. And I think he was just picking what war he was gardening, you know? I, I think that what you said is right. Like, that makes sense. And it's not just picking what war. I mean, thinking about this holistically as that first book and how it ends, mm-hmm. I think that's a great point that you said that the Field of Fire comes up twice in this book. We get a lot of like other world building things um, of other battles, etc. that don't come up in the first book, but the Field of Fire has to. And the emphasis on it being a great victory and what you're saying, you know, how it's portrayed in Tyrion, because then it adds weight to how the book ends when suddenly for the first time in over 100 years the night was alive mm-hmm. with the Song of Dragons. Like, it it, it all goes together. It, it feels like that's the importance, and I think yeah. maybe the direction just changes, you know? Changes to it. The dance, I think, has become one of the biggest parts, that and the Blackfires, as far as, like, Targaryen stories that are driving the Targaryen parts of the story. I think those two have become much more significant, but also he's developed so much more, and, I mean, you and I know this, we've did the dance till it was done over on patreon we talked a lot about house valerian we've talked about the maiden vault we've talked about all that stuff uh i just think now he's developed so many more ideas and stories to run with and maybe the field of fire did its uh its service for that and i'm sure it will come back yeah it did its service for that and to draw the parallels for when you know danny hatches them and you're like oh shit three dragons wow (laughs) just like aeon yes but yeah, in terms of what constitutes a giant victory, they hold at least 100 people hostage, as well as 12 Lords Bannermen, Lord Westerling, Bainfort, Greenfield, Estrin, Brax, Mallor the Dornishman, and three Lannisters, Jamie, and two nephews. Exposition. But also plot. <laughs> this is important for the plot, as we've discussed. But 
Catelyn interrupts Theon's boasting, asking him, okay, but do you have, like, Lord Tywin? Which they do not. So. I love it. I love what she snaps back with. She's like, okay, well, until you do, the war is not done, Theon. Love how. Smartass. I know, right? It's like, like, shut your fucking mouth for, like, two minutes, Theon. Important people are talking. (laughs) She is saying that. And, yeah, I mean, that's true. That's it. That's all you need to say, like, so you get Lord Tywin. No. So we end the chapter with Rob raised his head and pushed his hair back out of his eyes. My mother is right. We still have River Run. That's a good boy. Ready to go win his war. Well, <laughs> save Grandpappy. Ah, okay. uh, honey, you can't save Grandpappy. He's got the ulcers. The crabs. <sighs> it's a bummer. Yeah. Everything's a real bummer about this art. About real Chatelain's victorious chapter, though i mean chapters, yeah. but you know what I, I can't be sad because next week even in all of the grim sadness we are going to have something so exciting more than you know we're gonna have some surprises up our sleeves next week for you because next week is northern northern independence is that next week i believe i mean i don't know you tell me chloe <laughs> king in the north yeah i think so i think we're gonna close out a game of thrones next week for catalan wow wow i know isn't that kind of feels uh feels crazy we're through the first book pretty much already we'll start up clash soon and then we're going back to a game of thrones and we're doing it again yeah i mean that's it it's wild to me that this entire book series is only two books, you know? I George is... I, I don't know how he's going to wrap it up in three books. A trilogy. I look forward to the way that Catelyn Stark's arc ends in the 18 books that George R. R. Martin will be publishing next week. Yes. Well, if you want to follow us for all of those 18 books, or you have something to say about <laughs> it, perhaps you also want to send us animal pictures... Or you want to keep an eye out for if, you know, Robin gives us permission to share the Blueberry Mood chart. You can find us on social media, on Twitter, at Girls Gone Canon, C-A-N-O-N. Or again, perhaps you would like to send us animals or an animal mood chart for us to figure out who are we. You can send us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. A blued board. <laughs> yeah, I really, uh, I highly, highly recommend you sending us those. I can't wait to see them. Please send me your animal mood board. You know, 15 to 18 slots. That's perfect. Show me their moods. Yeah, dude. We love it, animal. <laughs> Make sure you're subscribed to us for future mood boards uh, <laughs> and future Catalan episodes, of course, on a podcast streaming platform near you. Whatever you like. If you like Spotify, Google Play, iTunes, Podbean, uh, Acast, Audacity. Wait, that's not a thing. Fuck. <sighs> when will we get this right? Audible. Amazon Podcasts, Pandora, iHeartRadio, you name it, we're on there. Just give us a quick Google. You'll find us. We are technically on Audacity, but only on my computer. Yeah, mine. Yes. You can also find us, though, on Patreon. Patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. And for patrons in the $5 tier and above, you do get special episodes each month. And again, last month, we went on a spring break tour to our Pentoshi penthouse edition mtv cribs it actually kind of (laughs) was actually it wasn't it was 
There were a lot of feelings that episode. Just like in a reality show. My God. We'll see you next week for Catalan in A Game of Thrones, closing it out for Catalan 11. I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana. (sighs) Whispering wood. Whisper, 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 whisper. Rob me, Raimi. Oh my god, I'll show you what my wood does, said Jamie Lannister to Kat. (sighs) Oh. <sighs>